if you would, uh, would you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 through 21. I see a little concern on some folks' face, so I'll put you at rest. I am not going to talk about meatpacking today. So, if we would look again at Ephesians 3, starting in verse 14. It says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened, with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. Now, over the last several weeks, uh, we've been using the analogy of a flight to describe how Ephesians can be broken up. We saw that the first three chapters are the takeoff and the flight, and we spent all this time soaring to look at our union in Christ that was brought about because of the counsel of the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit. And chapters four through six, we can consider the landing and the disembarking at our destination as we look at how these tremendous and amazing doctrines impact our day-to-day life. Now, one of the last announcements that you hear on a flight is when the flight attendant says, please make sure to get your stuff. They tell you to look in the overhead compartment and look under your seat because they don't want you to leave anything on the plane. They don't want you to forget the things that are important. They don't want you to lose track of your valuables. So there's a sense that this section of scripture, Paul is making that announcement to us. So we've been so high on this proverbial flight. We've been looking at God's loving work and salvation. We've cruised the heights to understand our unworthiness to receive that great love. Now, Paul wants to make sure that we take stock. He wants us to make sure that we don't forget these riches. He wants us to prevent us from leaving them behind when we disembark, when we go out, and when we walk in our earthly lives. So he does what we should do. He prays. He prays that God would help us to have an inventory of what Christ has supplied for us, that we might live lives that bring God glory. He wants us to have the maximum level of available power according to the fullness of God that we possibly can. He wants us to live and to operate at full strength. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are reminded that we are powerless without you. We can't hear your word. We can't understand your truth. Without the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, we we are helpless. Empower us now to understand just how marvelous your love is for us and strengthen us to live from that love. In Jesus' name. So beginning at verse 14, we read, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. So going back a little bit, we remember that Ephesians 3 starts with, 
For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. But rather than completing that thought and starting his prayer, he takes a little bit of a detour. He makes a parenthetical statement. Uh, Verses 2 through 13 are that statement before he comes back in verse 14. Now, verse 14 begins, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Now, since he repeats this for this reason, and he's coming back to his original thought, it's appropriate to to think that the the catalyst for verse 1 is the same one as the catalyst for verse 14. That the motivation for what he's about to pray is actually what he was describing in chapter 2. And for a little review of chapter 2, remember that it begins with our desperate need for the resurrection power of Christ, the power of God, the immeasurable great power that God demonstrated by raising Christ from the dead and seating him high above all rule and authorities in the heavens. And since we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we were just like those dry bones in Ezekiel. We could do nothing but God. But God exercised this power, this resurrection power in us, raising us from death to life in Christ. And this is the only means for that salvation. So whether or not you were of the commonwealth of Israel or you were those who were historically separated from the truth, we are all brought near to Christ. We are all brought near to God by the same blood, which is the blood of Christ. And as such, we're in a temple. We're being built into a temple that includes Jews and Greeks alike, a temple that has no barriers to unity, but instead offers peoples from all nations and throughout time access to the Father as one body. And we were reminded that though this building up of the body is completely God, he determines and deems it appropriate to use people to build up and participate in that work. So Paul begins this prayer as a result of considering the great gospel truth that he spent so much time in chapter two describing, but is also praying this way because of some of the sentiments that happened in verses two through 13. So it's a parenthetical phrase, but it is not something that's disconnected from what he wanted to say. Part of the reason for this this section, for this parenthetical phrase was to address some concerns that might arise when people realized or thought about the fact that Paul was a prisoner. They might be saddened. They might be distressed. They might lose heart. So Paul encourages them not to do that, but instead to rejoice that his hardships, the things that he's struggling with, are for their glory. In addition, in this interlude, he summarizes the mystery that he's explained in chapter 2. He talks about his ministry, and then he outlines the beautiful plan that God has for the church to display his manifold wisdom throughout all the cosmos. So again, in in addition to the truths of chapter two, he also prays because he is a servant of God for these people and he doesn't want them to lose heart. But finally, he prays because he can. As he's been explaining, all those who are believers, all those who are in Christ have access to the Father. Our loving Father has adopted us into his family. And because of that, we have peace. Because of that, we can pray and we can know that our prayers are heard. Because of that, even when we don't know how to pray, the Spirit intercedes on our behalf. 
And he is simply just taking advantage of this great privilege that is available to us all. So as he prays, as he makes his petition, Paul bows his knees. Now, this isn't just a way that he can show uh, some humility, but it's a picture of the posture of his heart. He knows that even though he is the beloved son of the Father and he can boldly approach the throne of grace, as we see in Hebrews 4.16, he knows that he should proceed with meekness. He is in the presence of the creator of all things, the one who has perfect wisdom. He is in the presence of the king of kings. So even though he's confident, he bows in humility. Rather than seeking to impose his will on God, he seeks to align himself with the purposes of God that God's power might work through him. And this is apparent not only in the way that his body looked, it's not only apparent there, but it's, it's apparent in the posture or in the content of his prayer. So he, he doesn't pray for their comfort. He prays that they would be conformed to the image of Christ. He prays that they would be given strength to understand the great riches and powers that are at their disposal. So Paul bows and he prays to this king who is also his father. Now we're going to look at verse 15. And as when we do, we see that his father is the one from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So the father that Paul is praying to, again, is not just his father. He is the father of all those who are in Christ, all those who were formerly children of wrath, but are now children of God, all those who have been adopted and by virtue of that can call him Abba Father. He is the father of children of every nation and again throughout time. Now, some of his children are currently on this earth. Some of them haven't been born. And some of them are with him in glory right now, as we are well aware of. But all of them are called by his name. Now, in the NKJV, verse 15 is translated, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. And again, that's different from the ESV, which I read, which says, from whom every family is named. Now, I think this is a more accurate translation because as we have seen, the theme of unity is so pervasive in Ephesians. We are one in Christ. Christ has one church. We are adopted into one family. So speaking about multiple families at this time would would seem a little bit out of place. So because the great gospel that we've seen in the first part of Ephesians and definitely in chapter 2 where we see the plan of salvation... And because Paul is a minister of this gospel and wants to encourage the Ephesians, and because he knows the the value and the power of prayer, Paul prays. And he has four prayer requests in the text that we're going to read. He prays that they would be strengthened in their inner being. He prays that they would have Christ dwell in their hearts. He prays that they would comprehend the immensity of God's love and that they would be filled with the fullness of God. So as we look at verse 16, we're going to get into the content of Paul's prayer. Verse 16 reads, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Now, earlier in this chapter, Paul tells us that he is to preach the unsearchable 
riches of Christ to the Gentiles. Unsearchable, inscrutable, unimaginable riches. So he's been called to preach wealth that is so unbelievable that it boggles the mind. And because of this charter, in chapter one, he prays that that would actually impact the people who he's preaching to. He prays that God would enlighten the hearts of the Ephesians and give them wisdom and knowledge so that they would understand these unfathomable riches that we have in Christ. So now he's praying that God would strengthen them in the same proportion as he demonstrated his great love. Looking at Ephesians 1, 7, we read, In him we have redemption through this blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So God's wealth is such that he is able to buy back. He is able to redeem all those who are his. And without blinking and without it having any real impact on his wealth, he is able to give each one of those people an eternal inheritance, one that will never fade and that will never fail. So just as as God has poured out his lavish love and his limitless love on these people, Paul is asking that they would be strengthened with the same boundless extent. And they would be strengthened on their inner being. Now, in our society, inner being doesn't get maybe as much play as it could. We, we are fixated on the outer being. We have countless dollars that are spent in the pursuit of fixing our bodies. And we will do just about anything to slow down, to prevent, to repair, and at worst case, to disguise the wasting away process that our brother Mark was talking about earlier. Now, we know that we do need to be good stewards of our bodies. These are gifts from God's as well, God's from well. And we can't neglect them. We can't treat them poorly and expect that to be God-honoring. But sometimes our focus on these outer shells is more than it should be. Sometimes we focus on our outer body to the extent that we ignore our inner being, and we have to be reminded, as we are in 1 Timothy 4.8, of God's priorities. 1 Timothy 4.8 says, For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So, working out has some value. And some workouts have more values than others. It is not actually working out to lift a donut. So even if you switch arms, it, it's not working out. So, so working out has some value. And there are some benefits to eating well, to exercising, to getting enough sleep. And taking care of our bodies can actually support our ministry. That being said, godliness is infinitely more valuable. God puts a premium on godliness over healthiness or being in good shape. And he says that it's more profitable not only in this life where we are struggling with these failing bodies, but also in the life where we will have imperishable, perfect bodies with him. This godliness, though, is not possible for those who are not in Christ. It's not possible for those who have not been raised from death to life by the resurrection power of Christ. Now, unbelievers cannot achieve this. They can get some level of morality. They can have works that look morally good, and they can accomplish some levels of moral reform. 
But the basis of those works is built on the self-righteous notion that a sinful person can make himself good. And it doesn't matter what you look like to others on the outside, that prideful notion puts you in opposition to God because no matter how good you may think that you are or others say that you are, it's disgusting to God. There's only one way to salvation. Now, anything we do, we know, outside of Christ fails to meet his perfect standards. The righteousness that is required of God requires repentance of our trust in ourselves and the notion that we can do this and putting our trust wholly in Jesus Christ. And it requires that our inner man be strengthened by the Holy Spirit and that we be empowered to walk a life in godliness. Now, as we are at the end of chapter three, we're getting ready to cross that threshold between the doctrinal discussions of the first half of the book and the duties, the day-to-day activities of the second half. And as we make this transition, there's a sense that Paul is concerned that the Ephesians are equipped for the hardships that are ahead because there's gonna be battles in their church, in their homes, at their businesses, and there's gonna be battles that are primarily going to take place in their hearts. And these battles can't be won by athleticism or physical prowess, The war between the passions that are described in James are not quelled whatsoever, even if you have a low-carb diet. And no matter how big your upper body is or how cardiovascularly endurant you are, it has no benefit as you battle and you wrestle against the spiritual forces of evil that are outlined in Ephesians 6. And we should see that the story of Samson is a tremendous cautionary tale for us because we have this man who had this amazing strength and was able to defeat 1,000 men with a donkey's jawbone, which is an interesting choice, but you use what you have. But he's able to do all these miraculous, or these seemingly miraculous works, but that strength could do nothing. It was impotent to quell his own lusts, which led to his destruction. So Paul wants to make sure, he wants to ensure that they know the kind of strength that they're going to need for what's ahead, for what he's about to tell them. He wants to make sure that they have the strength to humbly bear with one another. He wants them to have the power to put off the old self and to put on the whole armor of God. He wants them to have the ability to speak the truth and to walk in love. And again, this power is only available by virtue of the Holy Spirit. So Paul's first prayer request that we just looked at is that God would supply an incredible strengthening to the inner being, strength that is of the same magnitude and proportion that we've seen of his love, the exceedingly abundant riches of his love, and that is wrought by the immeasurably great power of the Holy Spirit. Now, the power that does this The power that provides this strength is the same power that makes us the holy temple of the Lord, that makes us a dwelling place for God. So we're going to need to keep that in mind as we look at the first half of verse 17, which gives us Paul's second prayer request. Verse 17a says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, understanding that we are God's temple where his spirit dwells, it can be confusing that Paul prays that Christ would dwell in their hearts. 
These were believers. We remember from the beginning that this book was written to the saints who were faithful in Ephesus. And in chapter 1, verse 15, he's praising God for the fruit of their salvation. In chapter 2, again, we looked at briefly, he's, he's marveling at the reconciliation they have with Christ. And here in chapter 3, he encourages the believers not to lose heart because of this great cosmic plan God has for them as members of his body, of his church. So to clear that up, we can look at this word dwell. So the word that is translated dwell here uh, can have connotations of settling down, of being at home, of being comfortable. We get a notion of this when we look at Ephesians 4.30 and it talks about not grieving the Holy Spirit, not making sad or uh, making uncomfortable with our corrupt speech or unkindness, the spirit that dwells in us. So here Paul prays that they would have the power of the spirit to walk in such a way that Christ would be at home in them. And again, we will look at that in Colossians 3, verses 15 through 16, where it says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So as believers, Christ dwells in us. Paul's prayer here is more about the quality of that inhabitation. He prays that we would be hospitable. He prays that we would be gracious and graceful hosts. Now, at our house, we have these wooden benches combination bookshelves. And we have a lot of small children, or we have some small children, and they like to put the books in, get the books out, and it's great for that. But they weren't created for comfort. Now, should anyone ever decide to sit down on these things, very quickly, they might start to question whether or not they really need to sit down. So a couple of nights, we, we had some guests over, and at some point, we were standing up, and we were talking, and we had been talking for a while. And the great host that I am, I never offered anyone a chair. So at some point, one of the guests makes his way over to this lovely wooden bench, and he sits down. Now, he didn't leave, but I hadn't made him comfortable. I hadn't made him feel at home. And praise God he didn't leave because that would have been awkward. But that's kind of what Paul is describing here. He wants us to do better than that, for, for, to live in a way that we are not grieving the Holy Spirit, that we're not making it uncomfortable for Christ. And also, as Paul reminds us of our union in Christ, his indwelling is accomplished again only by faith. Only by faith in the one who makes his heart our, makes our heart his home. So again, no feats of strength, no acts of willpower, no words wisely spoken can cause Christ to dwell in us. It is only by grace and only through faith. Now, that being said, again, our works and our words will change. James instructs us that a living faith will be accompanied by godly works. The same power that saves us is the power that conforms us to the image of Christ, that causes us to adopt his character. We're going to start to imitate our Father, and we're doing so as we're instructed in Ephesians 5.1. We're going to be sanctified, and this sanctification builds 
our inner being. It strengthens our inner being. Now, we know that sanctification comes through God's word. We see that in John 17, 17. And we also know that it comes through discipline. So look with me at Hebrews 12, 7 through 11, where it says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respect them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful, but rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, again, we remember that the Holy Spirit is the source of wisdom and knowledge. The Spirit enables us to understand God's word. It convicts us, and then it empowers us to repent. And it sustains us and instructs us, even if we are going through the sometimes painful discipline of our loving Heavenly Father, in order that, again, we might be more holy and that we might produce more fruit. So Paul prays that the living faith that we have in Christ would cause Christ to be at home in us. In order to facilitate that request, he goes to his third prayer request, which we see in verse 17b through 18. He prays that we would be strong enough to grasp the enormity of God's love. And he says that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and height, and depth, and length. So we understand the importance of roots for trees. In order for the tree to stand when there's a windstorm, it needs to have strong roots. Roots that dig down deep into the ground and act as an anchor. And without these, it would fall very easily. The tree also needs these roots for nourishment. The, the roots transport nutrients and water through the whole body so that it might live and flourish. Now, throughout this letter, Paul has been talking about believers growing up and being built up. The body grows unto Christ, and the church is built up by God. And he makes it clear that the roots of that healthy growth and the foundation for all that building is God's love. It's God's love, the lavish love that he displayed by sending his son to die on the cross for all those who believe. The love that Christ showed by enduring the wrath of the Father, the love that covers all of our sin and causes us to be accepted. And this is the only and the firmest of foundations. If you look at Isaiah 54, 10, you read, For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. The unfailing love of God is the bedrock of the Christian faith. It's the source of all the unimaginable riches that we have in Christ. So being rooted and grounded in this love of Christ will help prevent us from being tossed to and fro by human cunning and deceitful schemes. And it is the basis of our confidence that we can and we will be victorious. 
looking at Romans 8, 37 through 39, we read, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So in addition to being rooted and grounded in this love, Paul wants us to understand just how omnipresent this love is, just how immersive this love is. He wants them to be so entrenched, so aware of their dependence on this love that they somehow understand how astounding this love is because it is impossible without God's help. So we see the fourth and the final prayer request in verse 19, where it says, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now here, Paul is he's simply praying for a miracle. He's praying that they would know the unknowable. He's praying that their finite minds would somehow perceive the love that is so vast it'll take an eternity to understand, and then only completely. But in doing so, he's also praying that they would be filled with the fullness of God. So Paul wants them to be so saturated with the love of Christ that when they are squeezed by the trials that are coming, what will come out will be Christ. Going on to verse 20, he's completed his prayer and he's going to praise God again. He knows that he has access to the Father. He knows that his prayers are heard. So he praises God, praises him for the power that can answer any prayer. And he says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. So as we prepare again to cross this threshold into the second half of Ephesians, as we get ready to look at what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, Paul wants to take one more opportunity to encourage the church. He wants to make sure that no matter what they have gleaned from what came before, what they know about God's power in creating the world and, cre and crushing the hostility between them and God and between them and another people, he wants them to know that that's just the tip of the iceberg, that God is able to do so much more than that. He's able to do more than we could ask and beyond anything that we could even imagine. And because of that, we praise him. We look at verse 21, and it says, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So Paul's demonstrated to us how to pray. He's instructed us on some of the great doctrines of our faith. And here he demonstrates again our response to these truths. When we see how amazing God's work is and, and we see how omnipresent his love is, we glorify him and we praise him. And we're going to look at Psalm 96, verse 1 through 9, to give us just a little bit of an idea, a taste of what that might look like. And so Psalm 96, 1 through 9 says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. 
For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Now, the first three chapters which we are completing of Ephesians are, are just beautiful. It's, it's all God. It's all his glory. When we consider these amazing things, uh, things that we will never truly understand or, or only gain a part of, at those moments when we get a glimpse of the grandeur of God, it's easy to praise him. It's easy to ascribe glory when we are in awe of these lofty heights that we have been in this time. And when we get a sense of just how majestic and powerful it is, it's easy to do these things. But Paul knows that Ephesians 4 is coming. He knows that family conflict is coming. He knows that illness is coming. He knows that division is coming. He knows that persecution is coming. And he knows that when these things come, our emotions can fail us. The strength of our body and, and the fluidity of our thought can fail us. So when these things come, he wants to make sure that we're rooted and grounded, that we're entrenched in the love of Christ. He wants us to understand that the fullness of God and all his majestic splendor is available to empower us, to sustain us in our frailty. And that the mighty creator of all things, who rules all things, who is in all things, dwells in us. He enables us. The same God, this same God, who's done all these things, is again capable of doing things that we can't even conceive to ask. So Paul prays as we make this transition that we would appropriate the full available strength as we begin to walk in the way that we are called to. Now, as we finish up, we'll look at a couple of applications of what we have seen, what we can glean from this text. First, the obvious one, we need to be faithful in prayer. We should follow Paul's example of praying consistently, praying for the spiritual needs of others, and praying for others even when he's in a tough spot. And also, we should be faithful in our study. Let us be reminded, let us take the time every day to remember afresh the power that is available to us on behalf of the one who loves us and wields that power. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the privilege that we have to pray, to make our requests known to you, Lord, and to do so knowing that there is nothing that is impossible for you. Lord, you have given us incredible riches of your grace, and we thank you. We thank you for making them available to us solely because of your love and by your great works. And we ask that you would grant that we would be faithful stewards of these gifts and that we would, in fact, bring glory to your name. In Jesus' name, amen.